You're fed up with the 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. Welcome listeners to an electrifying episode of Business Breaks. I'm thrilled to introduce a master in the field of data strategy, data analytics, and digital marketing, Blake Birch. A trailblazing force behind smarter data utilization, Blake is the co-founder of Shipyard, a visionary workflow automation platform designed to liberate data teams from infrastructure worries, allowing them to focus on those strategic business actions. Blake's dynamic journey from heading data services at PMG, where he shaped the strategies of global giants like Gap, Sephora, and Cirque du Soleil, to his current mission of revolutionizing data utilization showcases his unwavering commitment to simplifying complexity. And with an expertise that spans beyond technology and business, as well as interests in esports and board games, Blake brings a fresh, multifaceted perspective that will undoubtedly reshape your view of data's potential. Now get ready to be inspired as we delve into the world of data-driven growth. Blake, welcome to Business Breaks. Thanks so much, Dante, for having me. Super excited uh, to be on the show and chat about how you can use data for automation. It's good stuff. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Thank you. And Blake, now your journey from pioneering data strategy to co-founding Shipyard showcases that remarkable evolution in your career. And can you take us back to the beginnings and share what ignited your passion for data? How did your experiences from heading data services at PMG to working with renowned brands shape your vision for seamlessly connecting the front end and back end of data analytics? Yeah. So I love letting people know that uh, I am completely self-taught when it comes to the data side. And my journey actually started off from me managing marketing campaigns uh, for different brands. And I found that I was having to do a lot of work in Excel. Uh, It was a lot of going to some tool, downloading the data into Excel, uh, like looking at a few things, making a few changes, writing a few formulas, then taking whatever I had created and then uploading it back into the system. And this was done for things like being able to change bids and budgets for our advertisers or being able to add in new keywords that we thought they should show up for or removing keywords that we hope they didn't show up for. And ultimately, I kind of hit a point of frustration for myself where I was like, there's got to be a better way like than me just going into this system continuously and doing the same thing day in and day out. And so I started working with the development team where I was at to figure out, okay, how do I get access to this data on a daily basis uh, so that I'm not having to go into the system, pull it down. And they uh, helped set up some databases internally for us. And I started teaching myself SQL to figure out, okay, how can I talk to this database to get that data every single day? And then I started realizing, well, uh, like if I'm trying to like analyze bids and things like that, I can write a query against the database that will always pull data for the last like seven days. And I can write a few uh A few like if then statements to say if it falls within this range, apply like this value change and so on and so forth. And then I could take that final file and upload it back to the system. And then I hit a point where I was like, okay, I don't want to have to be uploading this file to that system every single day. How do I automate that part? Uh, And that's where I ended up teaching myself like Python skills, where I had to learn how do I talk to APIs, the application programming interfaces that all of these other tools have in order to do very specific action. So it was a kind of a, a slow role for me of taking something that I knew intimately well how to do at the business and how to create value that I slowly tried to figure out how do I take each of these components and get them fully automated. And what that resulted in was me building out uh, something that was taking my job, doing it in an intelligent way and automating it every day that I could actually I could actually implement across not just the clients that I was working on, but all of the clients that we had as a, an agency. And uh, as soon as that started happening, people were like, wait, I want that on my client. And then, wait, I heard they all had this cool thing that was going on. Can you implement it for, for me? And so that resulted in me actually like building out a data team internally at PMG where I was previously. It was just through the opportunity of using this data to automate things. We figured out, wait, 
if we have the same data for every single client, we can apply similar rules based on their goals differing, and we can like open up a lot of free time for our account managers to focus on more high-impact uh, and strategic work on the marketing side than just the everyday bid management. And nowadays, that doesn't matter as much because Google's built out like AI and uh, Meta's built out uh, AI bidding systems. That It just handles it automatically. But back in the day, we had to do it all manually. So uh, that was kind of my initial journey of uh, building out things for the data team. And what that resulted in was us trying to build out standardized data sets for every single client. Um, and we had a division that was called data innovation that we just focused on what are new things that we can do with data in order to like accelerate our clients and be like ahead of the business and happy to dive into a few of those efforts. Uh, but uh, as we kept on building out those things, I saw more and more opportunities like amongst our clients that they just didn't have the necessary like tools and skill sets internally to be able to take advantage of the data that they had on hand to be able to automate and do things with it in a very streamlined fashion. And so that's what led to me actually taking some of the technology that we had at Shipyard, we spun or at PMG, sorry, we spun it out to be what is Shipyard today. And we decided, hey, rather than just going after these marketing problems, we're going to go after the data teams that have this data available, but need an easy way to move it between systems. They need an easy way to be able to uh, like actually create automated actions on it. And so that's ultimately what has kind of started the journey. And we've seen a huge amount of success in terms of helping people uh, take that data and get it moving in like 15 minutes or less, whereas it might take like two <laughs> weeks of engineering time just to get stuff in place. So it's been a fun journey. Sounds like it sounds like an absolute roller coaster where you had a little bit of a down, but then a huge upside. Um, and I'm sure it wasn't as simple as that because roller coasters go up and down and up and yep. down. And there's that story that probably would take a whole, like, I don't know, a whole series in itself, but amazing. So you basically ident you, you, you had your frustration and you eliminated your own pain point and you saw it was a pain point for others. And that just took off to where you, it was no longer a pain point, but then you could get to that next level and think, all right, now we're, we're going past process improvement to true innovation in data and the fact that you're self-taught, oh man, you're inspiring. Thank you. <laughs> that was <Thanks>. awesome. <laughs> so I guess if we go to the data tech stack and um, what do you think are the key components that should be present in now the modern data tech stack? Because when I was, you know, I was going to data conventions, I'm kind of, I would say, classroom-based, partially classroom-based, partially <laughs> self-taught. Um, but uh, in terms of, Back in the day, it was all about ETL, and now we're talking about lakehouse architecture, et cetera, et cetera. On those data tech stacks, how do you ensure seamless data integration, processing, visualization, and reporting across the organization's business when you have different departments, they have their own systems, they're not necessarily communicating with each other? How do you overcome that challenge, and how does the mo uh, modern data tech stack enable that? So what I would first say is that every business is going to be entirely different. And I think right now there's a lot of different hype cycles that are happening in the data space where people think they need this tool. It's the biggest thing they like if their business doesn't have it, it's going to fail. I just don't think that's true in a lot of instances. Like you have to critically assess like uh, how your business runs and uh, what you truly need. So like a good example there is like arguments of uh, real-time processing of data versus batch processing. If you are someone like Twitch who has to have like data of people chatting in real time or you need to have like overlays for like a sports game or something else like that, that needs real-time data. For most things, like I would say like 95% of businesses, batch processing is fine. It doesn't need to be live in the moment. You can batch process every hour and that's usually quick enough for uh, a lot of businesses. But in terms of like the foundational technology, the biggest thing from my perspective is having some sort of centralized analytics database. And my preference is usually to choose some sort of cloud da uh, database like uh, BigQuery or uh, Snowflake. And the main reason behind that is because while there's plenty of databases that can be run on the cloud, and these kind of differentiate themselves by being able to scale almost infinitely 
for the type of workload that you can throw at it. And they're more expensive as a result, but it means you're not having to spend time on someone managing servers and making sure that stuff is running smoothly. It means that if you dump all of the data that your business has on hand into that single spot, you're going to be able to analyze it. You're going to be able to throw visualizations on it. You're going to be able to write scripts to action on it without all of a sudden running out of storage capacity or having to spin up a new server or something else like that. And they're just fast. Like I think they run like a terabyte of data in 10 seconds. Like that's crazy. You're not going to get that uh, if you're trying to roll something on your own or using a smaller database. So that would be my first thing in the modern data stack, trying to have some sort of cloud database that can scale. The second thing that I would strongly recommend is finding a tool that can help load data in from uh, various different services. Um, those are going to be like your ingestion uh, tools. They'll sometimes get called like your ETL or ELT tools, extract, load, and transform. And the order that you do it in is up for debate. Again, it matters. Uh, the difference is what does your business actually need? Um, but these tools are custom designed to be like drag and drop, point and click, and to load data from like Salesforce or from Intercom or Zendesk or HubSpot or any of these tools that your business might be using and load them directly into Snowflake. So tools like that are going to be your Fivetran, uh, your Airbytes, your Portables. Those are some relatively well-known names in the space. But the, the third tool that I would say is kind of you're inevitably going to run into issues where like your ingestion provider doesn't support like the specific vendor that you need. And so you're going to have to have engineering build out some script that loads that data continuously. So you need an orchestration tool like Shipyard uh, to make sure that you can actually run those scripts somewhere and ensure that you are loading that data continuously and that you have monitoring, but also so that you can connect all of your touch points together. So you can verify, hey, after this Salesforce data has loaded into the warehouse, I'm then going to run SQL queries that like make sure the data is clean, and then I'm going to deliver it to a client, and then I'm going to refresh a dashboard or anything else. So those would be like my top three choices of what you really need to make sure that you're able to start driving value from your data. Somewhere to store it, some way to get it in, and some way to make sure that you can run all the extra scripts and connect everything together with a high level of observability into what's going on. Yeah. So you need an en a fuel tank, an engine, and a steering wheel, in other words, yes. I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, in terms of those uh, data shipyard, going more into it, how do they contribute to simplifying the complex data pipelines within a tech stack? And what strategies can organizations employ to manage data flow efficiently? I think it's one of those things that a lot of people don't end up thinking about until after it's kind of too late. And then they go back to the drawing board and they're like, man, we should have uh, invested in this and done something with it earlier. And what usually ends up being the problem is uh, twofold. One, uh, business stakeholders start losing trust in the data because somehow like data wasn't appropriately loaded, uh, maybe like a column was missing, some new piece of information came in there that nobody knew about. And what usually happens is that the data team doesn't know that it's going wrong. It's the business person that ends up finding something's wrong three days later after the fact. Uh, and then the data team afterwards is just scrambling, trying to figure out like what went wrong, where was the breakdown in the process, how do we fix this? And it's like 24 hour plus cycle to figure it out. Um, and that happens once. Then it happens twice and it happens multiple times. And you start getting to a point where you're like, oh man, we need some way to see every single touch point that this data is hitting so that if something goes wrong, it doesn't deliver bad data. Normally what happens like in the early stages is people just, they, they have uh, like scheduling systems in place. They'll say, hey, I'm going to load this data at 6 a.m. because that's normally when it's ready to go. At 7 a.m., I'm going to transform all of this data using a tool like dbt or something like that. And then um, at uh, 8 a.m., I'm going to refresh all my dashboards. And at 9 a.m., I'm just going to send out reports. Well, you're just making guesses. You're throwing out random times. And so there's lots of bad things that can happen with that where... Um, the, the worst is that, well, something went wrong at 6 a.m., but your 7, 8, and 9 a.m. processes are still running, uh, even with the bad data. Um, but there's also like the issue of if you're giving every step an hour, what happens if it finishes in 15 minutes? Now everyone is getting data later. 
just because you don't have a system that is effectively set up to say, hey, run as soon as the next step down the road is finished. And so that's really like where orchestration comes into play. A lot of businesses just think, oh, we'll do these piecemeal steps across tools at different times. It'll be fine. But no one can see how they're connected together. It takes a lot of discoverability to dig in and figure out where something uh, went wrong uh, in the business. So um, from my perspective, that's like one of the biggest use cases behind data orchestration, just having the connectivity and having like notifications to know when something goes wrong. But I think an additional layer that people uh, don't talk about enough is proactive alerting. Uh, because if you're losing business user trust, the best way to gain that back is by making sure that your flow of data, that on every single step, you can say, hey, if this errors out, contact this person let them know that these types of reports are going to be delayed and that the team is aware of it. And let's go ahead and like create a ticket in Jira or something like that to make people handle it. Like that doesn't happen in most or organizations, but that is something that you can set up with or orchestration. And what do you think people are going to trust more? Something where like they know it's wrong or where they're always unsure, is it going to be right or not? Because the data team couldn't catch it. So <laughs> to me, that's really the, the, the big solve that you can have. Um, from using data orchestration that sounds great and yeah it's i think a lot of the time it's about that transparency when things go wrong it's human nature to just try and cover your own backside and blame the other function and unfortunately that doesn't help progress the organization it's really about well we have a problem let's just focus on the fixing the problem rather than finding out root cause yeah. i mean we should go back and resolve it because if you don't look at the what went wrong, but we shouldn't do it in a way that kind of prevents people from actually being open about what went wrong, if that makes yeah. sense. And I think... We see even within like data teams that there's a like symptom of just throwing things over the wall, right? Like something was wrong yeah. in like the, the sales scoring uh, algorithm or something else like that. Well, it's not the data scientist team fault because they relied on the data that the data engineering team uh, set up. Well not the data engineering team's fault because the engineering team didn't have like something set up with the servers correctly and so like it ends up being like a finger pointing game because nobody knows like, <laughs> what it broke down and they just toss it over the wall i did my part doesn't matter like what it relies on how it connects so yeah and that, that is a very inefficient way <laughs> getting to the funny it usually comes down to can come down to a few lines of miswritten code um, even things as silly as having the right file naming convention. Someone may have removed some zeros in the period and yeah, suddenly it's not loading into your system and you think, hey, I'm missing all this data. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So yeah, there as you say. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say that there's a trend right now in the data like technology ecosystem. So we talked about like the hype cycles where a lot of people are talking about data observability. We need to know what's happening with our data at any given time and uh, like be made aware uh, if there's an issue. And it's a great cause, like right on paper, people are trying to solve how do we like make sure that bad data doesn't enter our systems. And the way that they kind of accomplish that is just like running multiple queries against your database to say like, hey, does this table have only these column names? Are they in this specific order? Are they matching this data type? Are they all unique values? And that list can go on and on and on. But they almost end up being finger pointing systems themselves because uh, like at the end of the day, they don't like know the intricacies of the data. So they just say, hey, something looks wrong. Uh, like you should go look at that. But they don't tell you why it went wrong, what the problem was. Like that ultimately comes down to like the systems, the processes and how you're like actually orchestrating all that stuff together. So it's just funny to see see that. Like I love it as a concept, but I feel like you should bake that into the process improvement rather than just having a system that lets you know hey something's wrong so brilliant and it all comes back to that context right because as in your example you mentioned sorry i'm geeking out completely i feel like i've <laughs> met a fellow <laughs> kindred spirit as it were but um yeah you you see it all the time i mean people create all these logs and and you're basically getting metadata over the business data and just trying to manage that and that becomes an industry in itself and as you say when these error tools aren't really looking at the right things so maybe someone decided to remove a few redundant fields from a data table because they were never being used mm -hmm. but then that flag flashes up as a big you know 
data discrepancy that can be used or misused, <laughs> it, it creates more problems than it possibly was, was intended to solve. But yeah. yeah, those are really some of the big data quality challenges. It's really finding that right balance between control and monitoring and actually just really doing what data is there to do, which is serve the business, I think. And I love that you mentioned logs because I think that is also like an underutilized area for people to dig into where when I was leading data over at PMG, um, one thing that we did because we were trying to move people from being entirely self-service with data, which was causing us to have like four tables that all contain the same data with like slightly different columns. We were trying to move into consolidated data sets uh, that we just called our core data. Same data for every single client, same naming system, so you can move back and forth between uh, things there. And one of our efforts was like, okay, how do we verify that people are using this data and how do we figure out what they're using it for? And so we, we implemented a process that was actually like tracking every query that ever came to the warehouse uh, and trying to figure out who is it associated to what team were they on? Uh, were they using it in like uh, like an online interface? Were they using it in Excel? Were they using it in Tableau? Um, so that we could track those things. Because part of it for us was trying to figure out how do we make sure that we increase the usage of this core data that we're developing to make sure that it gets to be like 60 to 70% of how data is being used. Uh, and, and then the other aspect of it was just trying to figure out what data doesn't matter? Because the problem is people just... <laughs> They hold on to a lot of data just in the hopes that someone might query it. But if you don't know what columns they're pulling or you don't know what tables they're uh, referencing, you'll never know. And to your point, what you were saying, like oftentimes you say like, ah, it shouldn't matter. I don't think anyone's using this. Well, if you're not looking at the logs or you don't have logs to begin with, you're never going to know what the data matters for. And for us, the logs were they, they were very like self-interested. We wanted to see our people using those tables, but we were also trying to figure out like, how do we validate like ROI and stuff of our team? Because that's something that a lot of data teams struggle with. They're a cost center. They store all this stuff. They fill out requests that people have. Uh, for us, as we were like implementing new automated systems, it was trying to figure out, all right, which clients are using those systems? How is their revenue changing over time? What percentage of that like revenue change can we attribute to our process and our data sets? And so I think just having log data available and digging into that and using that as a guide to figure out like data usage in the organization can unlock a huge amount of value. But I still don't see very many people talking about uh, doing that today. So hopefully listeners, if someone takes something away from this and <laughs> builds out some good <laughs> luck there. Yeah, but um, I guess there's a lot of people evangelizing it as well and haven't really got their hands dirty with like really massive sets of data. But it's, it's something that is definitely less glamorous but if you're really into data you really get excited when you see a good log yep. file and it tells that story i love what you said about being able to justify the value through understanding the cost because as you say rightly that a lot of the time data centers they don't charge out they're just generating costs and then there's a huge demand of data from the business and then suddenly they under they're asking well why is it so expensive to run you're asking for all these data services mm -hmm. and extra data and you know that costs money it does <laughs> so that's brilliant and i guess one thing i really wanted to pick your brain on is uh, as ai and machine learning becomes integral to analytics how should organizations incorporate these capabilities into their data tech stack so ultimately you need good quality data to have decent um, AI outcomes, right? And machine mm -hmm. learning, because if you, you know, garbage in, garbage out, the classic yep. expression, how do you ensure that when you're using AI and machine learning, how do you ensure the scalability, the data model governance, as well as the security and other, other issues you might have encountered? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about both those separate and specifically for like the AI portion. I'll talk a little bit more on like generative AI because that's been an area that I've been trying to dig in a whole lot on my side. Um, so when it comes for like machine learning, one thing that you want to try and make sure you have in place is really, really clean data sets that are consistent and always showing up the same exact way. Uh, I, I think there's still a lot of organizations today that they end up hiring a data scientist 
before they have a data engineer that has set up all this data to be effective. And that means that the data scientists can't get much out of their job. But uh, whenever you have all of the available data, I would say still before turning to machine learning, I have written some really long, fancy SQL queries that can get almost what you would get out of uh, machine learning. Not 100%, but still, I, I think it's important to evaluate, like, what is it that you're trying to accomplish, uh, like, with whatever you're trying to use machine learning for? What additional value do you expect it to drive for the business? Um, and uh, is that going to be worth the costs and time of having a single person develop a, like, well-tuned model um, to, to, to make sure that it all works because it, it really is kind of a economies of scale thing. If you are a business with like only a few million rows of data across your business for a lot of things, you're probably not going to have enough to be able to, uh, to move the needle as you might if you had billions of rows of information about customers and sales uh, and everything else there. But the, the important part is like the quality of the data and the quantity of the data there. I think once you have that in place for machine learning, the the next objective is trying to make sure uh, that you are able to, as you build out models and experiment, that you are able to validate that they are consistently giving the results uh, that are are needed. I. I, I don't know, I'm not going to mention the tool's name because uh, <laughs> I think some things have shifted over there, but there used to be a tool that allowed you to like try out like a hundred different models simultaneously on your um, uh, on your uh, data and verify which of these got closest to whatever your goal is. I thought that was a like brilliant strategy for trying to like, instead of spending months developing like the best model, like give you a good starting spot of which of these is going to um, get the closest. But once you found something that has gotten close, like you have to evaluate it over time. Is there drift? Is it consistently getting the same performance? Or do you need to continuously adjust it over time? And I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people forget that they might just uh, set up a model uh, and just leave it there running in the background. And it might get used for years, and it might be causing some damage. Like it's no different than like, a B test that people do on the website. Someone trying to verify this text or this color on a button. Is it like actually improving performance? And it keeps on improving performance, but if you add up all those additional performance improvements, one year later you might not like have the actual sum of all those improvements, right? Something went wrong. Something isn't like quite performing like you thought it would. And it's the same thing with machine learning that you, you can't just leave it there and hope that it will continue doing the same thing. You have to continuously evaluate it, uh, like the numbers and dig in and verify um, that the model is performing correctly. So all that to say, it's so much of a time investment and so important to make sure that you're constantly evaluating it. You have to make sure this is the thing that could truly like drive the needle for your business. And if it did drive it forward, it would drive it forward enough to validate the data storage costs, the personnel costs to build it out and all of that good stuff. But I'm going to stop there and see if you had any questions on the machine learning stuff before we dive into the the AI side. No, carry on. I, I was enjoying listening. <laughs> okay, cool. So on the AI side, there there's one thing that I see coming up a lot right now that I'm really excited about, which is the idea of being able to ask questions of your database. So rather than you having to write a SQL query, you are able to just say, hey, can you show me the top performers in Texas over the last six months? And it will generate a SQL query, run it against your uh, data warehouse and provide you back with the information. I think that is a really like great thing that we're seeing more and more people experiment with. But I think some people think it's just going to be easy. Like you ask any question and it's going to get it right. Um, but the the problem is that it's very difficult to define things in an organization consistently. So like uh, if we're defining like profitability, like it's going to differ for like the data that the marketing team has access to versus what the finance team has access to sometimes. And like, how do you embed those definitions? If you're asking what was the most profitable item for us last year, like, how does it know which tables to look at to determine uh, that information? Um, and how does it know what the exact like columns are that results in that calculation? And so there's a lot of conversations in the space right now about the semantic layer, which is more of how do we provide these like robust definitions of uh, 
how you calculate a specific metric or like which table should be looked at for very specific things that I think is it's not well standardized right now, but it's going to be an important piece of the puzzle because the the big danger with a lot of AI stuff is people just immediately assuming that it is right um, and not having any way to verify that, especially if you're non-technical and you have something that's running SQL in the background and you're not seeing the SQL and you're just taking the end result at face value, that could be like real dangerous if you don't have someone that is like actively validating, yes, that is the right query um, of what's happening there. So like what I'm more excited about on that front uh, is it giving ideas. So maybe if you're like trying to like think through like what are the like the top five things that changed the most in the past week that I should maybe look into. Like that's directional. It's something that allows you to dig into it. It might give you like specific insights, um, but it still takes like a, a human to to look through things more. So that's one area that I see generative AI being used more uh, in the um, in the analytics space. But it's not usually as simple as just asking a question. You have to provide things like, what is this schema of my database? So like before, and you say, I'm using BigQuery. My table names are this. These tables have these columns. These columns have these data types. Okay, now I ask my question down at the bottom. And so people are trying to figure out how do you automate that that little bit in the middle that provides all the extra. Uh, um, but yeah, that's one area of generative AI that I think is impactful. The other area is something that I'm kind of thinking about as like AI ops. How do you take the typical like engineering work that you would do and break it up into smaller components so that you can achieve like a very specific goal? So um, I'll give you a great example. We had a, a customer that we were working with um, just a week or two ago. And they were trying to take data from their Tableau instance and to be able to send to multiple uh, different clients. And the, the data wasn't quite formatted how they wanted it to be uh, because the client needed it to be in a very specific way because they had already set up their system to process it there. Um, but their team didn't have anyone technical that was available at that moment to transform the data. They were using us to download the data and send it, but they just needed to transform it. And so what we were able to go through was using something like uh, ChatGPT's code interpreter. You can provide sample data sets and then ask requirements and say, hey, I need you to pivot this data by this column and I need you to order things in this way and actually change the column names and maybe like some these specific uh, metrics and it will do it. It is not perfect at, at first glance, but it's something where you have to go through like a development life cycle with it. Oh, you didn't quite get that right. Instead, uh, like I need you to like focus on this specific data point or add in this additional column and you have to keep correcting it until it finally spits out the like right uh, output that you wanted. But the interesting thing about um, like Code Interpreter is that the code is all being run on your behalf and it's hidden. You can press a button to show what's running under the hood but it means that a non-technical person can actually take any sort of data and provide requirements about what they want to see and validate it by looking at it and saying like, yes, that does or doesn't look like I wanted it to. And then finally get like an end output that can be taken and put into like an orchestration platform like ours. And it was kind of eye-opening to me where I think it was maybe like four weeks ago at this point that I started challenging myself how can I just not write any code ever? And anytime like I need to do some sort of manipulation or a proof of concept or a script or anything else like that, how can I just provide the requirements and the initial file of where the data lived to Code Interpreter and see what it comes back with? Because I think that that is kind of where something like will be really strong in the future, like a human in the loop of going through that like engineering life cycle, breaking down the problem into chunks, taking each chunk, say, here's the input, here's the expected output, get to the right result, and then string that along to the next the the next like, unit of work there. So that's the area that I, I'm really excited about and I think is going to help a lot more people use low-code tools like Shipyard to um, not have to have the coding knowledge, but have the business knowledge of what they want to accomplish and be able to verify, yep, that does what I need it to do so that they can plug and play uh, code into a system without having to really know how the code is working. That's amazing. And thank you. So insightful. Quick question. Has Have you built OpenAI for training their algorithms yet? 
have we billed them? I'm joking. Yes. Again. <laughs> no, and we never put proprietary data or anything else like that in there. It's all sample data that you use to get the get the work done. Awesome stuff. And it, you, you've uh, provoked a lot of very good questions. It's almost like you have your own data engineer, which is a robot. And, um, well, it is, isn't it? Because you're actually asking the questions, you're giving them requirements, It's and based on what comes out, you can validate it and say, all right, here's the input, here's the expected output, here's the real output, and this is how you got to it, are walking me through it. And I guess a robot won't care if it's not worried about protecting its job, potentially. Yep. You know, so yeah. that's that's another thing. So it will hopefully be more transparent in that regard. Yeah. I think the big thing is right now, people expect it to be perfect the first time. They ask a question, if it doesn't give me the exact result I wanted, it didn't work. Well, I, I think we have to kind of like shift how we're thinking about incorporating it into our everyday life cycle, that it truly is uh, just like the development life cycle, where you have to go back and forth. Man, I've had some instances where... It, it apologizes 18 times because it couldn't do what I wanted it to do, but it eventually gets there. And it's just a matter of patience. And it's no different than what you would do with like working with a software engineer at your own organization because you didn't exactly state what you meant or there was something that got lost in translation. So it's kind of funny how human the interaction feels, but you can eventually get to the end result faster because you know what you want and you can immediately assess it. Brilliant. And have you seen any novel applications of this generative AI as you've been working and experimenting with it in certain data analytics examples? Have you seen anything that could perhaps provide a competitive edge when extracting insights from those complex data sets? Besides the obvious, you know, lower uh, learning curve, you know, being able to do more faster. Is there anything else you've seen in that? that has made you go, wow? I would love to say yes, <laughs> but I I think like it's a bit of a stretch for like being this this silver bullet for like providing better insights and everything else. I think a lot of it is just about like streamlining the productivity and what it takes to be able to get to an end result and verify, does this matter? Is it something that we should pursue and, and just test out uh, various proof of concepts. I haven't seen anything that has like necessarily like wowed me uh, in the analytics space, but I think the the wow factor now I, I'm almost considering it to be commonplace of just how much it's speeding up the life cycle of being able to ask a question, get an answer, and see if something's possible or not. Brilliant. So I think for now, just to confirm, data engineers shouldn't be worried at the moment about losing their jobs. <laughs> I would not be worried. <laughs> Brilliant. And I guess, uh, in what ways can generative AI assist data augmentation for training machine learning models? And um, what considerations, when when they're doing this, what considerations you you touched upon it with regard to sharing proprietary data and data security? And but what other things should they be mindful of when using real world data to try and uh, build out uh, a proof of concept? Yeah, I, I think if you're trying to do anything with real-world data, you really have to be cautious about making sure that you have ownership over the models. So whether that's using open-source models and running them on your own servers, or it's paying for direct access to, I think OpenAI has like Azure uh, models specifically now that don't take your data and like retrain it and stuff like that. You have to be really conscious uh, of that. And from like a... Uh, data availability perspective, you 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 still want to make sure that like within the organization that certain people are restricted in terms of access of what data sets they have uh, that they can pull for the organization, uh, making sure that you're restricting that down to like a column level uh, if necessary, uh, because you don't want to have all the data available to everyone in the organization that they can potentially throw at these models uh, and um, potentially have data go out there. Um, I think right now it's so new for a lot of people though that like there's no like great uh, there's no great systematic ways to prevent uh, like larger data sets from uh, like being sent to some of these models. Like you have to you have to try and make sure that you are training appropriately within an organization like what data should uh, actually be sent 
to these tools? What, how can you take data that you have and turn it into a sample set? Or how can you make sure that you are appropriately obfuscating the personally identifiable information? That was a lot of words, PII. The, anything that's sensitive, uh, making sure that, that that is not part of uh, the file that you are uploading and sending to these uh, services. So like data security is is top of mind. I think it's reframing it that you don't always want to give it the full data set. You almost want to give it the metadata. What sort of exists here and have it make some assumption that you can apply to the real data rather than giving it the like exact uh, actual data. Brilliant. And, you know, generative AI, I, I think about obviously there's the text so you can generate rows and rows and tons of verbiage, shall we say. Uh, but there's also mid-journey and data visualization is uh, is something that's a hot topic uh, when it's uh, attached to effective storytelling. How does, and I've seen some people who, you know, they post on social media, I asked mid-journey to create a dashboard. It looks fancy, but doesn't really look very functional. So I guess how how have you seen any effective cases of integrating generative AI t- techniques that can provide visualizations that are b- both interpretable and explainable? And I guess, are there any industries that are adopting that sort of approach with generative AI? Or is it mostly looking at the back end and thinking, well, can we run some machine learning models to make the data work better? under the hood or is there something on the front end that actually you've seen that has made you think well this is a trend that could um, go forward i think we're a ways away from being able to provide a data set and have it give like a true visualization because at the end of the day generative ai is just taking a bunch of training data and trying to provide an approximation of what the most likely things are it's not going to ever be a hundred percent accurate and so it's best for the fields where like accuracy doesn't matter or it's something where uh, like a human is going to be in the loop and can assess it. So in terms of being able to visualize data sets that it's given, that's not something that I've seen. But I have seen some interesting ideas from using like generated images and doing experimentation from a data perspective uh, using those. So uh, like a, a great example um, is uh, like advertisers having um, multiple different uh, like images and ads that they show where the model might be wearing like a specific uh, color of shirt and a specific type of pants and they're like, I don't know, sitting outside or something else like that. Well, there are tools like Stable Diffusion, which have great models that can change very specific attributes of the image to where you could say, Hey, instead of a red shirt, make it a purple shirt. Or instead of being outside, let's put them in a like abandoned warehouse. I don't know what it's going to be. But the, the thing is that you can toss these like verbal prompts at an image and create multiple variations. And then you can use these multiple variations to automatically test them against each other in the type of advertising that you're doing to, in- to try and figure out like which of these variations is going to perform the best for us which can help inform uh, like the the team that's actually taking the pictures initially and like what sort of stylistic changes they might need to do because they perform best. But at the same time, it means that you might not have to have like a model change their outfit continuously. You just do one one <laughs> shot and you can use it in multiple different situations. So that's an area where I've seen like the the visual uh, AI generation be used in kind of a a data driven way and same thing for uh, things like youtube thumbnails or anything else like that anything where that image can affect click-through rate or capturing someone's attention that is ripe for trying to figure out how can i just generate this on the fly or make a few changes and see what's uh, what's going to perform best but yeah in terms of the the dashboards themselves i think a lot of that is still going to be in the in the camp of a lot of BI tools trying to make sure that you have 100% accurate data. It might give you an idea of, hey, that'd be a cool way to visualize this, but I would never like trust throwing some data points at a model and uh, assuming that the the end result is an accurate reflection of that data. Yeah, I mean what all of this innovation seems to be doing is making everything it's it's lowering the barrier to entry, right? Making it cheaper, faster. 
not necessarily better because I can imagine coming back to your analogy of A-B testing, uh, having people having AI generate pictures and then changing them to your favorite color scheme based on your browsing activity. So that could be a thing in the future and then influencing you to buy more stuff you don't need, for example. Mm-hmm. And I guess there are those potential ethical concerns related to the use of generative AI in data analytics and digital marketing. Yep. Do you think there are other things that we should be uh, concerned about, for example, bias amplification, unintentional data leakage? How would businesses be looking to address those challenges? I would say one of the things that scares me the most about having like a fully autonomous type system of uh, generative AI is the the ripeness for like prompt injections. Uh, There are some folks uh, that have some great write ups on this online. I I wish I had them off the top of my head, but effectively, like as of right now, it feels almost impossible to stop. If people are scraping websites, you can have hidden text in there that only gets written written by sorry read. Uh, by uh, the actual like AI whenever it's scrape, scraping the site or like if you had some sort of like AI service that's uh, in your email someone could send an email that like overrides uh, your email assistant to like delete all of your stuff or things like that and so prompt injection is probably like the hardest thing to to protect against unless you have like a fully closed loop internally so you make sure that you are not actually building anything that is uh, based upon like currently live data that you've like pre-vetted all the data that's in the training set and you you know that it is a closed system. Um, I would say that that is probably the, the biggest thing that scares me because if we know what people have said can be done with it, what isn't being said and what are people figuring out uh, behind the scenes. Um, I also think bias is a potential concern but I think if we are not evaluating the the output that and I think I've said this multiple different times that having the human in the loop, like that is the biggest part to make sure that we don't let this technology just run away, get out of control and that we don't know how it's working. Like we need to make sure that if you're using it, you understand the output, you verify that it's doing exactly what you want it to uh, and ensuring that there's there's like no malintent uh, in the in the final output there. Brilliant. And uh, it just underpins the importance of having people, uh, not just with the um, technical expertise, but also that moral compass to understand the implications of what's going on and be able to translate it uh, beyond a piece of code or an instruction. It's actually what's the intent behind it. And as you say, scary stuff potentially. And the fact that yeah, I've never heard of prompt injection, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read up on that as well. So thank you, that's yeah. something new for me. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's 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 funny how people don't talk about these things, and maybe because the insiders who know are probably want to keep it to themselves, and eventually there will be regulations around it. And you see con- countries that probably are aware of it, but they're trying to figure out well, what is it? How do we deal with it potentially? And how can we deal with it effectively? So, yeah, huge implications. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I guess uh, coming to some more general business versus technical teams, which is a pet passion of mine, having transitioned from business to the tech side of things and IT, albeit as a project manager who can do a bit of coding myself, uh, I, I, I've seen both sides of the argument and I was that angry manager on the business blaming IT. So I, I do hang, hold my hand up and say, yeah, every time a, a system issue came up, I, I would blame, I would, I would be happy to throw it over the wall and um, say, it's IT's fault. I can't close my books on time, blah, blah, blah. Um, I guess when you're trying to improve things, there are risks that things go wrong. What intriguing hurdles have you encountered whilst trying to move processes forward to ensure that they are not only high quality, but also generating prized data assets for the business, such as with the right uh, attributes, such as being accessible, well-timed, as well as comprehensible? 
I would say that the biggest thing that a lot of organizations fall short on, which results in projects like not quite being what they were promised or expected or anything else, is is making sure that you are appropriately scoping the purpose behind the, the project initially. So I, I see a lot of teams that can get stuck in a cycle of what I just call like request stops. It's nothing but like, hey, I need this data set. Hey, I need this dashboard. Hey, I need... Um, some sort of insight on uh, this table and uh, the team just says, yes, yes, I'll get that done. But what needs to happen in a lot of those situations is that you go to the person that was requesting this table and try and figure out, okay, what what do you need this table for? What are you trying to do with this? What's the end result and action that you expect to take? All right, so let's get you into a situation. I'm going to give you this fake data set. This is kind of what it... it's going to look like, okay? Show me exactly right now with this fake data set, like what would you do with it? And trying to uh, understand like the true intent behind the request for the data. Because oftentimes what you find is that people didn't want that specific data set or that they thought that data set was going to have this one key piece of information that they were hoping to to be able to leverage for some uh, other purpose that they could tell their boss or that they could uh, add to a system or give to their sales leads, whatever it might be. And so literally just having this conversation, which takes a little bit more time of creating fake data sets and like going through a like a kind of exercise of data usage gets you to a point where you realize, oh, that's what you actually wanted. Uh, Okay. Now that we know you want that, when it's implemented, what business impact is that going to have? And can can we validate that? Okay, here's the time estimate that it would take for us to build it versus the actual business impact. Is that going to uh, be more valuable than what we put into it? I think you're you're smiling and nodding your head like those conversations don't happen as often as they need uh, to happen within organizations, but it can save a lot of time and headache. And it also makes sure that everyone is happier with the end product because you talked about those expectations and how things were going to be used and you got the sign off on that. Um, and it verifies that, hey, the time and effort that I'm putting in is going to actually have some sort of ROI and business value that I can go back to leaders and say, hey, I helped facilitate this process for this team. And that's why like what my team is working on is valuable. So for me, that's the biggest thing, just stepping back and trying to figure out like, the exact reason something is being asked for and uh, trying to make sure that you map out the the entire cycle before uh, doing the work. I would say for a lot of teams, that means you're probably rejecting 50% of the work that comes in your door because a lot of the data requests don't actually matter and they're not driving the needle forward. So that's one aspect of it. Um, another aspect that I think is really important is trying to be proactive. Um, I've heard a lot of like data leaders talk in the space. Rather than being the team that just accepts these requests coming in, set aside time to like have your team develop a dashboard that you think is going to like provide useful information to the organization or provide a key detail that you can share with the leadership in a specific division. Because all of a sudden, you will change yourself from being a reactive organization to being one that people rely on to give them information that helps accelerate like their own ability to do stuff. But you can't just do that out of the blue. In order for you to understand what would be valuable, you have to have these conversations to understand what is the work that you're doing every single day Like, what are the problems that you're currently facing? What questions do you have that you're not able to answer? Because you as the data person can take those questions and figure out how to map it back to the the SQL query, the table and everything else. They don't understand that. They never will. But it's your job to make sure that you're truly understanding the business so that you can proactively provide the right resources that will help them achieve what they need to on their side. Oh, no, you made me smile on so many levels. You hear (laughs) so many truths. And I'm coming from a place where I've changed or my team has changed the dashboard four times. They implemented something, they changed it, they changed it back, they changed it again, and then they changed it back again. Or we're having that discussion about changing it back again. So kind of, you know, the customer, you have that mindset of the customer is always right. I think the customer needs to be challenged as well to understand mm-hmm. what they're trying to achieve otherwise you end up doing throwaway development and um, you're absolutely right one of the successes I've seen is 
when you've done a small proof of concept and you've just validated the assumptions because you don't know it's, if it's going to work. And, you know, agility is about delivering things in increments. But even before that, as you say, you can do wireframes to see, does this dashboard give you what you want? Or even build out something based on a smaller use case or on something even like Excel, just to say, is this the way it should work? And let's have a conversation around it. Yeah, 100% agree there. And if you're not doing that, it just results in both parties getting frustrated with each other <laughs> because you're talking past each other. You're both doing a good job and you're doing your own thing, but you haven't figured out how to get on the same page and make sure that each person's needs are getting met in the way that they need to get that. Yeah. I think you've you've answered or partially answered my next question, but I want to ask it anyway to see if there's any other examples. And Again, it was really coming to about bridging that communication gap between technical experts and business experts who are often great at what they do, but they speak a different language. So I guess uh, probably it does answer it really. I, how do you ensure that, how else can you ensure that insights are understood and effectively translated into strategic decisions? I guess, does it depend at what level you're you're interacting? Do you find it works better at the high levels or more better at the lower levels where you have cross-functional business teams who are actually building out the solutions together? I think the answer is it depends, but a model that I really like that I had implemented when I was at PMG was our data team was spending... 25 to 50% of their time actually with the account managers doing the work of running a social campaign or a paid search campaign or a display campaign. Like that wasn't their wheelhouse. But what it meant was that they had the empathy to understand what the everyday work was like, what they were, what people internally were looking at, how they like managed their own processes so that they could understand the opportunities and help relate what the data could do for them and talk about it in a way that that person could understand. Now, that's not always the case at a business. You can have someone do non-data work for a portion of time, even though I think rotational programs like that are great. But there, there's also the idea of like not having the data team live under the data team. Instead, having it be like a dedicated analyst per division. So one for sales, one for HR, one for finance, one for product. Um, and they might report up to someone that's able to take all of these insights and talk through things. But when you embed data people into uh, the work that other people are doing, it gives them the resources to be able to understand the day-to-day -day problems um, that people are facing and figure out how to actually communicate um, with those individuals in a way that's going to resonate. Um, and that's going to differ whether you're doing it at the high level or whether you're doing it at the level of people that are at implementing the work. But I think a lot of it is just building out an empathy and understanding for the actual day-to-day -day work being done and understanding like what those people care about in order to say like, hey, this insight can help drive forward this specific metric that you uh, care about or uh, that it's going to like accelerate your productivity in, in this process by like this amount. Whatever it is, it's going to be different for every person and every department, but it's just, you got to get in the weeds and uh, understand another aspect of the business than just the data. Brilliant. And yeah, it's completely about getting into the weeds and just getting your hands dirty on these issues rather than shying away and just, as you said, uh, throwing it over the wall and saying it's not my issue. Yeah. And that empathy, that solution about, you know, the expression that comes to mind is walking a mile in another person's shoes. So, yeah, I completely yep. agree. Thank you. Uh, Blake, um, I think we're out of time, but um, you've been an amazing guest and um, really enjoyed this conversation. I just want to wrap up. I know you have some interesting hobbies, so can I ask you, uh, what do you like to do in your spare time? I'd say the biggest hobby on my side is board games. Um, yeah. I have a collection of over 100 of them. I run weekly board game events uh, down here in Austin. I go to conventions for it. And for me, it, like, it's been a hobby that I've had for 10 years. And I think what I really enjoy about it is it's a way to make sure that I'm like keeping my brain active. Like I'm able to like strategize and think through new things, but in a healthy environment and just like doing work, work, work all the time. 
But also, it's a great way to just connect with people that isn't behind a screen. Uh, It's a good activity that uh, you can get to know people better over time, build relationships that way. And so that's probably the thing that I feel the most of my free time with. And it's always something that gives me more energy and more joy. Brilliant. And I'm sure my listeners have gotten a lot of value, but... uh where if if anyone wanted to reach out to you where could they best reach out to you online you can find me on linkedin or twitter if you search for blake birch and you can find uh, shipyard if you just go to shipyardapp.com i'll make sure the uh, links are in the show notes thank you blake and well uh, that concludes today's episode a big thank you blake and also to all our listeners for tuning in to business breaks Stay tuned for more exciting conversations on the transformative power of data analytics in the world of business. And until next time, keep breaking those data barriers. Blake, thank you so much. Thanks. This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT, and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.